So we did about the first half of Matthew chapter 1 on Sunday morning, opening the pages of this incredible document, which begins in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I want to point out a couple more thoughts on the genealogical record and why Matthew begins with it. See, the nice thing about Wednesday nights is what you get is you get the pieces that we leave out Sunday morning to fill in some of the blanks, a few of the, of the more intricate details that are an awful lot of fun to be aware of. So we're going to look at a couple more things there before we roll on into chapter 2 tonight. But let's begin one more time with the prayer. Father, it seems to me that we can't pray too much, that we can't pause and call out to you too often, that we can't still ourselves and wait to listen to your Spirit. Father, that we can't do any of these things too much. And Jesus, tonight... We just, I just confirm what my, my brothers have prayed earlier. Lord, we, we want you here. We want this fellowship to be more than a group that encourages and socializes and hangs out together. We want this fellowship to be more than a people who uh, are studious. We desire, Father, for this fellowship to be more than a mark on Northwood the Island. Father, we pray that we might be a people through whom you live and breathe and move. We want to be a people, Lord, individually and collectively who are doing what you have called us to do, who are alert to and aware of the, the, the speaking of your Spirit into our lives. We want to be guided by the truth and the foundation and the, the steadiness, Lord, of your Word, but listening all the while to how you want to mold us in this life. We recognize, Father, that, that once giving, having given our lives to Jesus, that our lives are no longer our own. They belong to you. That we were created for that very purpose, for your good pleasure. And Father, I need to be reminded of that. I was created for your pleasure and not my pleasure. And what blesses me beyond words, Father, is that when I seek to live in such a way that pleases you, as Jesus says, I only do the things that please my Father. Lord, as I seek to live that way, I find that I am so pleased myself, that I am so blessed, that, that I'm in the very place that you created me to be. And there is unparalleled joy in that place. And so we want to be pleasing to you, Lord. We pray tonight that the things that go into our heads will make their way on down into our hearts. That our behavior would change, our actions, the way we love one another. And that, Father, the great light of Jesus that we just sang about would shine out of our, our lives so much that people would see our good works, glorify our Father in heaven, and come to the place of repentance so they, they could receive salvation and your pleasure, Father just as so many of us have. Use our lives, Father, as your instruments in this world. And tonight we ask, Holy Spirit, humbly we come before you asking that you would be our teacher and that these words would penetrate deeply as you seek to perform and perfect your will in our lives. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. A couple of more thoughts on the genealogical record that I thought you might want to be aware of. Matthew 1.16 We covered the first 17 verses Sunday morning. If you weren't able to make it Sunday morning, I encourage you to go back and listen to that because it all builds on itself. Verse 16 tells us that this man Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. Not Joseph, but Mary. Who is called the Messiah. First thing to note that we didn't talk about Sunday is that it is critical to clarify the genealogies correctly. It's critical to clarify the genealogies correctly. As many of you know, there are two genealogies of Jesus. Two places where his lineage is shown in the Bible. One in the Gospel of Matthew, the other one in the Gospel of Luke. I want to be very clear about this because even after Sunday, a question arose as to which genealogy goes to which parent. Because one of the genealogies goes to Joseph. And the other one actually tracks Mary's line. So let me be clear about this so we're all on the same page. Matthew traces, the book of Matthew traces the legal right of Jesus to the throne of David through Solomon down the line to Joseph. So this is Joseph's line tracking down to Jesus. It's important. You might say, well, yeah, but Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. He, he adopted Jesus, as it were. He wasn't his real dad. So, so why put Joseph's genealogy in there? Because through Joseph, adopting Jesus as his son, the legal right to the throne gets passed along. So it's an important genealogy to have there. In Luke, the genealogy is different. If you read it, there are some different names. It can be confusing. And people who have not studied these things will compare the two and say, see, the Bible's full of contradiction. Well, it's not, because Luke's genealogy, the good doctor traces the hereditary right of Jesus to the throne through Mary, through the actual human bloodline of Mary, by whom, as Matthew writes, Jesus was born. So Matthew gives us the legal line through Joseph and gives us the bloodline through Mary. Why again is that so important? Because as we've talked about a few weeks back in our study of 2 Kings, there was a curse placed on a man named Jeconiah. Jeconiah you will find in the line of Joseph in verse 11. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Here's the curse. Jeremiah 22:24. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Keniah, it's Jeconiah, but he leaves out the Jah, which is Yah from Yahweh, because Yahweh doesn't want to share any of his name with this man Jeconiah. He removes the Yah, and it's just Keniah. So he says, even though Keniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, even if you were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off, says the Lord. God is ticked. He says in verse 30 of Jeremiah 22, Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. No man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So no one in the bloodline from Jeconiah forward would ever have a legal right to sit on the throne. But Jesus does. Why? Because he's not the actual son of Joseph. He is not the blood son of Joseph. But the right does get passed on via adoption. So God gets right around that, and it's marvelous how he does it. Now you might say, well, Rick, I've heard this teaching before. Why does it really matter? I mean, who cares if Jesus was born through the line of Nathan? Who cares if he was born through the line of Chuck, you know? Or the line of Buford, or the line of a Bill? Well, who cares? I mean, he was born. Isn't that all we really need to know? You know, I think we can at times be lackadaisical about God's word. But God never is. 
We can cast off things. We can say, for example, we can say, why does it matter what the book of Revelation says? Why does the end, why do the end times matter? Erin and I were having this conversation. Not because of her, because of a friend. No, it wasn't it wasn't because of her. But but just this conversation and you've probably heard people say, Why study the book of Revelation? What's gonna happen is gonna happen. Who cares? Why do I need to know this stuff? And we become lackadaisical about the very things God put down on paper for us to know. He didn't take the time to inspire the word so that we could go, eh, doesn't matter. It may not matter so much to God to us, but it always matters to God. Isaiah 55:11. He said, "My word, which goes forth from my mouth, will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I have sent it." In Psalm 119, 130, I love this verse. He says, "The unfolding of your word gives light; it gives understanding to the simple," which really applies well to me. I love that verse. It gives understanding to the simple. So I don't have to be a scholar? No. So I don't have to be a great theologian to get it? No. All I have to do is unfold it. I'm simple in that I want to know why I believe what I believe. I don't want to take someone else's word for it. I want to take God's word for it. And I want to know what He has for us, for me. And gang, the day is going to come and probably has come in many of your lives when the storms are too much for us. When, when the, the winds are battering at us, and even the most carefree among us will yearn to know where we can stand securely, where we can be safe, a place where we know everything's going to be okay, and so God intentionally established the foundation stone of Jesus Christ. And we see that in Matthew. That's why the genealogy is so important. Matthew is laying the groundwork here for a great gospel. Therefore, Isaiah 28.16 says, The Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes will not be disturbed. That's good news. Maybe you've had a disturbing week already. Maybe just getting up and looking at yourself in the mirror in the morning was disturbing enough. (laughs) But the promise is he who believes in Jesus has a foundation on which we can stand that is rock solid and secure and will never pass away. Paul in Romans 9.33, Peter in 1 Peter 2.6 both declare that this stone, this foundation stone, this costly stone is Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But not only is it critical to, to connect the lines correctly, to know, okay, this is the line through Joseph and this is the line through Mary, but secondly, it's, it's important to know this, the contents are chosen for completeness. The contents of these genealogies, the contents are chosen for completeness. I ran across something that at first bothered me a little bit, and it was the fact that if you compare Matthew's genealogy to the genealogy of the kings in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, there are names left out. And we made a big deal on Sunday morning saying, and Matthew even says, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the deportation, 14 generations from there on to Christ. He makes this big deal about the number 14 and the number of names. But to do it, listen to me, Matthew had to leave some names out. Well, that bothered me a little bit. Thankfully, he who believes in Jesus will not be disturbed. So I wasn't too disturbed about it. 
Why does he do this? Matthew in verse 8. If you look down at verse 8, you see Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. Joram the father of Uzziah. And Matthew completely skips, completely leaves out Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. Three kings that are in this line. Why are they not there? Down in verse 11, Matthew skips Jehoiakim. But he does mention Jeconiah. If I was going to leave anybody out of this, I'd leave Jeconiah out. You know, along with Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba. But he leaves out certain names. Why would he do that? Genealogies often, in Scripture and in history, often will skip generations just hitting the high points and and make, giving us a big picture of the lineage. But, but I think it's much more than that. I don't think he was just kind of quickly throwing something together. In fact, as you read this, it, it becomes clear he is extremely purposeful in what he's doing. Matthew verifies the completeness of the coming king in a way I don't believe he possibly even himself realized. Look at verse 17 again. All the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Listen to me. Matthew is not writing a specific biography of Jesus. Matthew is declaring the authority of Jesus. Matthew, in writing this gospel, is not giving us every nuance, every aspect of Jesus' life. What he's doing is saying, I want to show you how you can know that this Jesus is God and King. And so he leaves some names out to do it. And there's something, again, far more complete and profound than the names of each one of the kings of Judah in this lineage. Think about this. Three sets of 14. 14 times 3 equals 42. Correct? Yeah, 42. The number is divisible by 7. And 7, you Bible students know, is the number of biblical completion. So in writing this genealogy, having 42 generations listed out, Matthew is hinting at something. Again, whether he realizes it or not, there is a completeness here. Don't miss the completeness. In other words, when Jesus arrived, the history of the kings in Israel would be complete. There would be no other king after Jesus. What about Herod? You'll see Herod in a few minutes. He was a puppet king. There would be no more kings given by God once we reach Jesus because the line is complete in Jesus Christ. But it gets more complete than this. Again, the number of generations is 42. So let's do a little math. What two factors yield a product of 42? You know what? I actually had to look up the mathematical terms because I could not remember factors and products. What two factors yield a product of 42? What times what equals 42? Six times seven. Isn't that interesting? Seven is the number of God's completion. Six is the number of a man. Who is Jesus? But complete God and complete man. He is both. Being both God and man, deity and humanity combined, Jesus Christ is God's complete answer to our need for a king. And I believe the Lord is calling us back to that theocracy with Jesus Christ as king and ruler. Ah, Rick, you might say, okay, six times seven, that's just a coincidence. You just slapped that up in your office and thought it'd be cool to tell us about it. Well, Bible students, I think you know what else is here. In the first 11 verses of this genealogy alone... The number of words, the number of letters, the number of vowels, 
the number of consonants, the number of words that begin with vowels, the number of words that begin with consonants, the number of words occurring more than once, and the number of words occurring in more than one form, the number of words occurring in only one form, the number of nouns, the number of male names, the total number of names, and the number of generations when written in the Greek as Matthew retranslated it, and it's the copy that we have, all of these things are divisible by seven. Every one of them. Now, that should absolutely blow our minds. A doctor by the name of Ivan Panin discovered that Matthew's genealogy contains 14 of these heptatic structures. Heptad is a big word. It just means seven. Fourteen of these divisions of seven are discovered within Matthew's genealogy. I guess Dr. Ivan Panin had the time to sit down and think this through. Maybe he figured out the 42 and went 6 by 7, that's divisible by 7. And started to go back and add up. But 14 times in this genealogy, words used, names used, letters used, are divisible by the number 7. To help you understand the odds of this, of a random lineage like this fulfilling just 9, and this one has 14, just 9 heptads would be the odds of 40,353,607 to 1. To make it more practical for you, Chuck Missler says if you took 10 minutes per draft and you worked 40 hours a week for 50 weeks a year to construct a genealogy like this, it would take you 3,000 years to accomplish it. Clearly something beyond Matthew is going on here. Something bigger than the pen of a man is happening in this gospel. The contents of this gospel are chosen for completeness. Matthew, again, is not writing a biological sketch or a biographical sketch. He's proclaiming the truth. He is establishing Jesus as king, as our solid foundation. He is the foundation for the throne. He's the one who sits on the throne. He is both our Lord and King. Well, let's continue on. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. I'm not going to talk about this for a few minutes tonight, but watch Joseph in here. Pay attention to this man. He's pretty impressive. Verse 20, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The virgin birth of Jesus, as declared by both Matthew and Luke, the virgin birth that is still acknowledged annually by our world has been disputed and discounted by many people. In fact, this is the place a lot of skeptics and critics will go to the virgin birth right here to try and undermine this reality of who Jesus is. Maybe you've heard the maiden argument. Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14 there in verse 23. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Isaiah 7 tells us. Behold, a virgin will, bear, will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And there are those who say, hey, that word virgin there, translated virgin in your, in your Bibles, it's the word Alma in the Hebrew. Maybe you've heard the name Alma. 
That's where it comes from. It simply means maiden or young woman of marriageable age. And so a critic would say, well, see, it doesn't mean virgin. It could just mean maiden. So Mary was just a maiden, not a virgin. And the reality is there was no miraculous virgin birth. Well, the implications are kind of obvious to me. The name or the word Alma meaning a young woman of marriageable age and in Jesus' day and time to be marriageable you had to be a virgin. It was not like America of 2008 where virginity is a whatever. In Jesus' day it mattered. And a woman found not to be a virgin on the wedding night was in danger lawfully of being stoned to death. So the use of the word Alma, I believe, has got to be virgin. But people will argue that, and that's fine. They want more proof. Consider this. Isaiah, again in Isaiah 7.14, wrote that the Lord would give a sign. Or miracle. The word means either one. Sign or miracle. And Alma will be with child. A maiden will be with child. It's going to be a sign. Now we can talk about the miracle of childbirth all we want. But the reality is it happens all the time. No offense, Penelope, but it's not that miraculous. It happens. (laughs) Women do it every single day. Men suffer through it every single day. In 2007, in the United States alone, an average of eight babies were born every minute. That's one every seven seconds. While we're having this Bible study, I mean, someone do the math on that. Every seven seconds a baby's being born in our country. What is miraculous about that? Now I know, I know life is a miracle and I agree with that. But God says, I'm going to give you a sign. A young woman's going to be with a child and give birth to a son. Wow, it's been happening since day one. So it's got to be more than just a young woman. A sign would be a virgin giving birth. That would be a miracle. And I think the Bible is explicit about this. Well, where's the sign? Revelation 12, verse 1. tells us a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and moon under her feet. And on her head a crown of twelve stars. And by the way, that is a beautiful picture that John gives of Israel. I can explain that later or you can just go listen to it in the Revelation study. It's online. But it says she was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. And Revelation 12.5 says she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. John said it's a sign. A miraculous sign. Truly the birth, the virgin birth of Jesus was an absolute unexplainable miracle. It could not happen any other way than to be God ordained. And it hasn't happened any other way before or after Jesus. He's the only one. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 22 gives us some more insight into this. Jeremiah the prophet says, the Lord speaking, How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter, speaking of Israel? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. New thing? Well, again, go back to the beginning. Women have been given birth to male children for a long time. How is it a new thing for a woman to encompass a man? Well, Jeremiah uses the word for man here that is the word gabar. Its root is the Hebrew word abir, and it literally means not man, but mighty one. Read that way, the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a mighty one. A mighty one. Psalm 132 
Verse 4, David wrote, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. The Bible is very clear throughout. It's only unclear when you just don't want to pay attention. It's only unclear when you want to try and shove it off as something untrue. It's an amazing book. The indication throughout Scripture is this child Jesus, encompassed in the womb of a virgin, is the Mighty One, born to be the Mighty King. Of course, Isaiah 9.6 tells us a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Let me just ask you, Believers in Jesus tonight, can you join David in saying that you will not rest until you give place to the Mighty One in your life? David was talking about building the temple. David said, I will not rest until there is a place where we can come worship God and focus on the Mighty One. But for you and for me, are you willing to do whatever it takes to give place to the Mighty One in the temple of your body? That Jesus be... The king who is there. Now if you're still unsure about the miraculous here, Matthew's got more loaded up for us in the next chapter, but I've got to give you one more thing in the first chapter with reference to Mary's virginity, especially if you happen to come from a Catholic background. Matthew's gospel, gospel rejects outright the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is taught in the Catholic Church. And if you've been to the Catholic Church or you have a Catholic background, you're very aware of it. The perpetual virginity of Mary. That she was always a virgin. Before Jesus was born and afterward, she remained a virgin. She never was actually with a man. And the idea of the, of the doctrine comes from trying to elevate Mary to a higher place. Well, what does Matthew say about that? Look at verse 24. He says, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And I'm sure that was difficult enough for him. And he called his name... And he called his name Jesus... He, he, he let her remain a virgin. He didn't touch her until. And that word until is so obvious. Until. You're not getting out of here until Pastor Rick finishes teaching. What does that tell you? <laughs> I'm going to finish before we leave. Not the whole gospel. Just chapter 2. A godly teenager might make this statement. I refuse to give myself away until I get married. Which I believe is one of the greatest things you teenage girls and guys can say. Amen. I will not give myself away until I get married. But you know what? When I get married, woohoo! <laughs> and I'm not trying to embarrass, but you know what? Sexual intimacy in a marriage, God ordained, God designed, God made it great, but not until the right time. Amen. And so here we have Matthew very clearly stating that Mary was a virgin until, which means after the birth of Jesus, no longer a virgin. In fact, we even have the brothers of Jesus, half-brothers, listed in Scripture. Two of them wrote letters, James and Jude. Until. Now in chapter 2, some new characters emerge in the unfolding drama, a group we call the Magi. And a man who I call a megalomaniac. Let's look at these guys. 
Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king By the way, I'll just throw this out a little tidbit We shared this around Christmas time before Bethlehem, the name of the town means house of bread Bethlehem Okay, Beth is house of, Lachem is bread in the Hebrew, and Jesus called himself the bread of life. I think that's so cool. The bread of life was born to us in the house of bread. Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Well, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Let me give you some notes on the megalomaniac before we get to the Magi. Herod the Great, self-named. Okay, kind of like the king of pop, alright? Made up his own name. Herod the Great built massive, breathtaking palaces and strongholds all over Israel, the ruins of which you can still see today. Masada, you may have heard is an unbelievable stroke of architectural genius. It's incredible just to tour Masada and to see the way he thought through things, including putting part of his palace down on, I believe it's the north side where the cool winds come across the desert to have automatic air conditioning. I mean, this guy was was brilliant when it came to these things. He built Caesarea by the sea, another fantastic, amazing archaeological find in Israel. He was the one who shored up the Temple Mount, turned it literally into a big, massive rock box on which his huge, phenomenal temple, the second temple, could be built. It was a wonder the world around. And you can go down into the rabbi's tunnel in Jerusalem and see there, underground, stones that Herod laid. Stones that are 47 feet long, 10 feet high, and 10 feet in depth, weighing as much as 170 tons. And I've shared before, we still don't know how to move something like that. We have no idea how he got it out of the quarry up to the Temple Mount to build what he built. Herod was an absolute genius. Traces of his architecture can be seen all over the land today. But for all his grand and glorious building, it might surprise you to find out that Herod himself rose to the great stature of just over four feet tall. He was a puny little fella. And he had a massive, massive ego. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia has this to say about Herod. Two powers struggled in him for the mastery, and the lower one at last gained complete control. During the first part of Herod's reign, there were evidences of large-heartedness, of great possibilities in the man. But the bitter experiences of his life, the endless whisperings and warnings of his court, the irreconcilable spirit of the Jews, as well as the consciousness of his own wrongdoing, changed him into a tyrant who bathed his own house and his own people in blood. For you see, Herod, for all of his greatness, was also brutally cruel and insanely paranoid. This king, and you start to realize why he was so troubled when the Magi came to him. He was paranoid for his throne. So paranoid was Herod that he rooted out and destroyed all the men of his beloved wife's family so that none of them could usurp his throne. He killed nearly all of his own sons except a couple of the most evil just again to protect his own throne. Herod took his wife, Mariamne, who he desperately loved and had her executed for a most likely bogus claim of adultery, which it was never proven. Of course, after the fact, Herod missed her so much that he had a tower built for her there in Jerusalem so he could go think about her. That's it. 74-foot tower called the Mariamne's Tower. 
And supposedly, after her execution, Herod kept her body encased in honey for seven years. The Talmud tells us about that and refers to this kind of mental derangement as a deed of Herod. This is the kind of stuff that you would almost expect to find on the second page of the news. Just a weird, bizarre tales. And this is the king, Herod the Great, who was king at the time of Jesus' birth. Maybe things begin to make some sense to you as to his behavior. He wanted to be sure when he died that people would mourn his death. So he decreed that all of his top statesmen and all of his family be killed on the day of his death. So that there would be crying and weeping in Jerusalem when he died. Now, the trouble with this was that when he died, everyone realized that they didn't keep the order and no one was going to do anything about it anyway, so they didn't. And nobody mourned when Herod died. But Proverbs 19.3 says, The foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. That describes Herod. A man's heart who rages against the Lord. Well, the Magi arrive and Herod is troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why is all Jerusalem troubled? Because you don't want a nut like Herod to be troubled. When Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's the idea here. The Magi show up. Magi is from the Greek word magus or magis, which is from a Persian word that's associated not with magic, but with students of the stars, wise men, astrologers. And that's who the Magi were, scientist astrologers. We don't know how many they were. People like to sing about the three kings. Well, they weren't kings, and there weren't necessarily three of them. We have no idea how many there were. People assume because there were three gifts, there were three wise men. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. There could have been two or three. There could have been ten or fifteen. We're not sure. They weren't kings. However, they were noble-minded men. Which I know because Proverbs 25.2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search out a matter. And that's what these guys are doing. They've been reading scripture. They've been checking out some of the Hebrew prophecies. And they've been watching the stars to see if, in fact, those prophecies might come true. And so they came looking for the Hebrew Messiah. But how did they know? How did the Magi know that the Jewish Messiah would have his own star? What would encourage them to go looking? They must have been aware of Numbers 24:17, where Balaam, the seer, made this comment. He said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near a star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. John Walbert in his excellent commentary notes that the whole world was expecting the Savior King. All around, and especially down in Babylon where astrology was a big deal. And to the east, everybody was reading not only the Hebrew Scriptures, but looking into other places. And there was a buzz about the time of the birth of Jesus that something was going to happen. So these guys came following a star. Verse 4 tells us, gathering together all the people, all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I think when Matthew added this, it must have just galled the Hebrew leaders of the day. He's using their own words against them. Kind of like we're seeing on the commercials for the presidential uh, election that's coming up, is using their words against each other. And that's exactly what Matthew does here. He says, hey, you guys are the ones who said it. You said he was going to be born in Bethlehem of, of Judea. 
He's quoting there in verse 6 the prophecy from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, written 400 years earlier. The scribes quote Micah's prophecy, but they do leave out part of it. Listen to the scribes again. They say, You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. But Micah goes on to say, His going forth is from long ago, from the days of eternity. The scribes didn't quote that part. Which makes me wonder if at this time already they're rejecting the notion of God in the flesh, of Emmanuel God with us. They just leave that out, and that's interesting to me. Do we leave out parts of the word that we find difficult? Do you ever do that? You're reading through the Bible, and you're like, boy, I just don't like the sound of that. Let's move on. And that's what the scribes are doing. Well, verse 7 says, Herod secretly called the Magi, and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Well, after hearing the king, they went their way. And watch this. The star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, with my apologies to all the planetariums and observatories that make an extra few bucks at Christmas time, this is not a naturalistic phenomenon. Now, you may have looked this up on the web or tried to figure out, you know, what was the configuration of the stars in the day? The only explanation for this star is a supernatural explanation, and, and I can prove to you why. Matthew writes that the Magi first saw the star in the east. Okay, they, were, they were from the east, and so they, they saw the star in the east, and they began to follow that star as it led them west to Jerusalem. Well, that's already kind of weird. But you might say, yeah, maybe a star just appearing over where Jerusalem was. They headed that direction. But watch what the star does. Somehow it went on before them back east to lead them to Bethlehem, which is roughly six miles southeast of Jerusalem. And it settled over the precise place, the house where the child was. Now, now show me a single star that you've ever seen that can show you a specific house in a town. This star did. They knew exactly which door to knock on. They didn't just start knocking doors in Bethlehem. So the star leads them to the west, and then it leads them back. This is one magic star. It's moving around. It's going where God wants it to go, and it leads them to the precise place where the child was. And verse 11 says, After coming into the house, note that the house, not the manger, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. A quick read of Matthew chapter 2 blows so many of our Christmas traditions out of the water, and I apologize. You know, I know that's a little bit of a bummer with Christmas around the corner. Some of you are going to have to go home and remove your three kings from your manger scenes and take the star and, and put a little sign that says this is supernatural and you know do some different things. <laughs> the reality is when the Magi arrived to visit Jesus, he was no longer in the manger. He was in a house. And it was likely that Jesus by this time was not an infant at all, but was a toddler. But as they're handing him gifts, he's running around. He was possibly as old as two years old when the Magi got there. Somewhere between one and two is most likely for the toddler Jesus. Interesting. How do we know that? I'll tell you in a minute. Verse 11 goes on and says, They fell to the ground. Well, let me back up. They saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped them. Well, it doesn't say that, does it? 
They fell to the ground and they worshipped Him. If ever there was a time when Mary should have been worshipped, if she was in fact divinity as some would claim, wouldn't you think it'd be now? Wouldn't you think that these wise men would be falling on their faces before Mary, the birth mother? They didn't. They fell down before the toddler and gave him gifts and worshipped him. Genesis 49.10 All the way back there it said The scepter shall not depart from Judah Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet Until Shiloh or Messiah comes And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples To nobody else but to Jesus Christ alone So the Magi they begin to worship Jesus there In verse 11 Opening their treasures They presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh Entire sermons have been preached on these three gifts Fantastic and interesting they are Again, three gifts is why we have assumed three kings, but it's not the quantity of gifts that matters here. It's the quality of what they represent. Gold is the obvious gift for a king. Frankincense, an obvious gift for one who lives as an intercessory priest, a priest who offers incense. And myrrh is the gift for a corpse. So of course you'd want to give that to a baby. I thought about this. You want to mess up a good time at a baby shower? <laughs> Bring a coupon for a headstone. Rick, that's a little offensive. Well, offer 25% off embalming charges at your local mortuary. I'm sure a young mother would love that. I know that's harsh. That's exactly what was happening here. Understand, these wise men, these astrologers, handed the gift of myrrh, which is a burial spice, to a mother and her baby. Why would they do that? Well, we have the benefit of history in hindsight. We know why he was given the gift for a burial because this child came to die. This child came to be a sacrifice. By the way, Isaiah prophesies that similar gifts will be given to Jesus at his second coming. Isaiah 60 verse 6 says, A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. But the one gift they will not give at Jesus' second coming is myrrh. Because he doesn't come to die the second time he comes to rule and reign. Well, verse 12 goes on. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi, these wise men, left for their own country by another way. James Taylor has one of my favorite songs. It's called Home by Another Way. And in the song he sings, maybe me and you can be wise guys too and go home by another way. And that's what these magi do. They listen to the Lord, they pay attention to what God says, and they don't go back up to Jerusalem. They slip quietly away back to the east where they came from. I think there's a lesson in here for us. that Sometimes we don't fight the establishment. Sometimes we don't try to go head to head with those who would disagree or with those who would deny the deity of Jesus. Sometimes we quietly take the gospel to another place. A place where people are listening. Jesus would later in Matthew chapter 10 verse 14 tell his disciples, Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Let, let this be an encouragement to you. Don't get hung up on the naysayers. Don't get stressed out or worn out on the bitterly opposed to the message of truth. Don't get stuck in the mire of debate and argument. Just go home another way. And take the gospel to people who are willing to listen. Verse 13. 
Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up! Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And you know what you do when an angel of the Lord tells you to get up? You get up. (laughs) And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. You know, it's interesting. There are some who believe, John Walbert is one of these, that this happened on the same night. That the wise men were there. They visited. They gave the gifts. And they fell asleep. And Joseph and Mary and Jesus were there. And they all fell asleep. And the dreams came. And the wise men were warned, go home another way. So they up and left and went home another way. And that same night, Joseph was warned, get your family out. And so he up and got the family out. He remained there, verse 15, until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Another prophecy fulfilled, Matthew is pointing out for us. Let's read that prophecy. Hosea 11, 1 says, Literally, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. When you hear that, you say, oh, he's talking about Israel. And the son in that prophecy is Israel. And, of course, Isaiah is referring to the fact that Abraham and, well, actually Jacob and his family of, of 70 went down into Egypt and then ultimately, 400 years later, came back out of Egypt into the Promised Land. That's what Isaiah is talking about. So, why does Matthew pull out that verse and say it was a prophecy about Jesus? Is it a prophecy for Israel? Or is it a prophecy for Jesus? And the answer to the question is yes. It is both a prophecy for Israel and a prophecy for Jesus. And what Matthew does here is great. He draws a, a powerful parallel between Israel and Jesus. Between Israel as son of Yahweh going down into and coming back up out of Egypt and Jesus Christ who as the greater son of Yahweh also went down into and came back up out of Egypt. And there's another little subtle picture here for us. Egypt in the Bible is always a picture of the world. And so just as Jesus as a child was taken into Egypt and then brought back out, so Jesus as the man came down into our world and ultimately came back out. But just as Israel's coming out of Egypt into the land was significant to the providential history of the land, so to an even greater degree was it for Jesus. Biblical prophecies, you need to understand, often have a dual-pronged nature to them, as we're going to see again in just a moment. Now in the meantime, all this is going on, and Herod is losing it. Verse 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which had been determined from the Magi and that's how we know Jesus was between one and two years old because Herod determined that the age of the child had to be couldn't be any older than two but was somewhere two and under so we see in that statement the age of Jesus by the time the Magi came and they said yeah he's got to be this age and that was before remember that they saw Jesus so by the time they would get to him Jesus would have been a toddler verse 17 then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled here's another prophecy it's Jeremiah 31:15. a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning Rachel weeping for her children as she refused to be comforted because they were no more Matthew quotes Jeremiah here written half a century earlier 
And it's again a two-pronged prophecy. I'll tell you something interesting about Rama. Rama was a city to the north of Jerusalem and Rama happened to be the deportation center for the people of Judah when they went into Babylonian captivity. And so when Jeremiah spoke this, he spoke truth as to what was about to happen or probably at that point what had already happened or what was happening. In Rama there was great weeping because that's where everybody had to go to get their assignment to be sent then on into Babylon. The people of Israel flowed into Rama and were deported from there. And so Jeremiah is talking about their weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel being that representative of Israel. But later, the prophecy is fulfilled in a much more sinister way as children were being murdered. For when Herod called for the murder of all male babies ages 2 and under, it was a 12 to 15 mile sweep from Bethlehem, which would have included the city of Ramah. So throughout that region, as these babies of Israel were being slaughtered, the mothers were weeping, refusing to be comforted, because their children were no more. Verse 19. When Herod died, and by the way, Josephus told us that he died in great pain, covered and eaten by worms, which is exactly how his son Archelaus would die later. Thought I'd throw that in there for Heather. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said to him, Get up, take the child and his mother, go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, because when an angel tells you to get up, you get up. Right, good. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee, which is up in the north of Israel. And he came and lived in a city called Nazareth, which Luke tells us was the birthplace of both, or was the, the home place of both Joseph and Mary. Bethlehem was their hometown. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. And that is the fifth prophecy of these opening verses. Five prophecies we've seen so far. Isaiah's prophecy of the virgin birth, chapter 1, verse 23. Micah's prophecy of the Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem birth, chapter 2, verse 6. Hosea's prophecy of the flight to Egypt, chapter 2, verse 15. Jeremiah's prophecy of the weeping in Ramah, chapter 2, verse 18. And number 5, Matthew ends with this prophecy, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now this is the only one that's slightly problematic. You look at that and say, okay, well, I'm going to look that up in the Old Testament and find where was Jesus called, where was Messiah called a Nazarene. And unless you know Hebrew, you won't find it. Because it's not explicitly uh, searchable or findable in English. In the Hebrew, we discover this verse, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. You Bible students may remember the Hebrew for Nazarene is Netzer, and the word Netzer is branch. And so the prophecy is there that a branch would shoot from the stem of Jesse. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, Netzer, Nazarene. He will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. Which, by the way, is the prophetic reason we believe when Jesus returns, he will build the millennial temple. It will be under his oversight. 
And he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple, and he who will bear the honor and sit on the and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. That is the office of both priest and king. Jesus alone is able to fulfill both. And so that gets us to the end of chapter two, and I I had a lot of notes on chapter three. We're going to save that. But I do want to say one more thing before we go tonight. There's an underrated character in this dramatic saga who we have to hand it to. And that's Joseph. Joseph is this this quiet man. Luke mentions him in his opening couple of chapters, but aside from that, this is it. We will not see Joseph in the ministry of Jesus. We will not see him at the crucifixion or resurrection. For all we know, he died. Maybe when Jesus was a young man prior to his ministry, we don't know. The last time we see Joseph is when Jesus is 12. When he and Mary go back to find Jesus at the temple. But that's all we know of him. He disappears into obscurity. But don't miss what this godly man does. He hears from angels four times in this story, which tells us Joseph is listening. Each and every time, without argument or debate, he up and does exactly what he's told, which tells us he's obeying. All of this while life was at best confusing and at worst terrifying, which tells us Joseph was trusting. Gentlemen especially, listen to me. Listening, obeying, trusting. We have in Joseph a picture of a man of God. He doesn't do anything flashy. There's nothing fantastic here. He's not promoting himself. He's not fighting in the halls of business. He's not making a name for himself. He's not lording it over his family. He loves his family. He protects his family. And the way he does it, men, the way he does it is he listens to the Lord. And he obeys the Lord. And he trusts the Lord. This is a man who leads his household for Jesus' sake. Literally. Ironside in his commentary said, Joseph furnishes us with the most precious example of implicit obedience to the will of God, even under the most perplexing and difficult circumstances. He never will be listed as a great man. His name is not even found in the Hall of the Faithful in Hebrews chapter 11. But this was the man who was chosen to adopt Jesus as an infant. This is the man who was chosen to raise God's son. Why? Because he spoke God's language. Joseph spoke the language of faith. He listened. He obeyed. He trusted. May we be found with a faith like that. Let's pray. Father, we haven't even gotten to the words and actions and move of Jesus. But we are amazed at Him. And we praise Him and declare His Lordship tonight and and sit, Lord, under His authority. We, like the wise men, would be wise and give worship and obeisance to You as our King, Jesus. We see examples here for both godly men and godly women of what it means to obey and what it means to listen We see in this life of Joseph a man who truly knew what it meant to simply follow you, even in the most difficult of circumstances. So Father, I I pray, and 
have some motivation here, Father, of recent conversations. And Father, I thank you for opening my eyes to some things. But Lord, I believe that you are calling the men of this fellowship to be like Joseph. To listen more intently. And to obey more fully and to trust you in all things. Father, I know you have some things in mind. Again, for the men of this fellowship. Lord, I know you love the women and you have things in mind for them as well. But Father, I just tonight would ask that you would make clear to us how we should walk as men. That you will teach us, brothers, how to disciple and love each other. Not just to hang back while our wives do all the fellowshipping and all the activities and all the, the interacting but to begin to learn to give of ourselves, Lord, in the service of the King. Father, make us like Joseph, but much more so, make us like Jesus. And it's in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray tonight. Amen.